Hello and welcome to another College of Optometrists podcast with me, Martin Cordner, Head of Research at the College. And me, Daniel Holderman-Hartney, Clinical Advisor at the College. In today's episode, we caught up with a new social movement, which is probably a first for us. The 15 seconds, 30 minutes movement is designed to reduce frustration and spread joy at work, which... Sounds no bad thing, uh, but it's also good for patients, which we go into in the chat. Uh, Daniel and I spoke to one of the founders of the movement, Rachel Pilling, a consultant ophthalmologist working in West Yorkshire, specialising in paediatric ophthalmology and eye care for people with learning disabilities, about where the movement came from, how it works, and the effects that it can have. So, Daniel, why did this idea speak to you? You were quite keen on it beforehand, and uh, why was that? So the amazing thing about this idea, and I don't know how many of the people listening to this will have heard about it in the past, it may be an introduction into the world of of optometry, Mm. but it's such a simple idea. Mm. There's nothing complex, there's no barriers, there's no permissions, it's just a simple thing that you can do to help somebody mm-hmm. else in in life. As you know, I've been involved in compassionate practice for a sure, while. Yeah. I'm interested in what we're doing to enjoy our jobs more in terms of to help the people we serve more. And, and actually this fitted into it really nicely. So was it really the idea of sort of joy? Because there's all sorts of schemes people come along with which say this is how you can be more efficient or this is how you can give better to X. But was it the idea it's like, no, at the heart of this, let's just have a sort of... Um, you know, two levers, and one is joy and one is frustration, and we want we want the joy one and we want less of the frustration one. Was that one of the things that really attracted you? I, I think joy has a bit of a, a buzzword at the moment mm. in, in True, the yes. world of... The Marie Kondo. Yeah, yeah, indeed. But but that said, joy and happiness is so important. It yes. what, it's what drives us, I think, to, to want to become optometrists or ophthalmologists. It's about helping people and the happiness that that brings us, but also the happiness and joy that that may bring other people. Mm-hmm. And probably worth remembering that... Uh, that you know things can change as well so as you say people might be going through a slightly sort of you know melancholy or thing about what you know you get settled into a a rhythm or sometimes a rut and anything that creates more joy uh, can shake things up to the extent that you might get more enthusiastic yeah and let's be quite frank about it when you're working in healthcare you have tough days you know everyone listening to this will have had really difficult long days they will have witnessed touch points in people's lives that are very sad very overwhelming they're the you know, worked on days with lots of colleagues who may be off poorly and be overstretched or had to stay late or not have their lunch break or, 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 or just, you know, struggling to do their best and still not saving sight as much as they want to do. Mm-hmm. And, and that can really be very wearing as a clinician. So anything which focuses the mind and the attention on happiness, joy and helping other people has to be a good thing. It's really important in the healthcare context. Cool. And do you think this is something that could catch on? Oh, absolutely. I think it already has caught on and I think it will gain momentum in optometry. And, you know, talking to Rachel Mm. as a, you you know, she's got so much positive energy. She's really committed, Mm. um, not just to her discipline of ophthalmology, but but helping people with learning difficulties. Um, It's a very inspiring um, podcast to listen to. Yeah, she does strike me as the kind of person who might literally turn up at your house sort of saying, oh, why don't you try this? Uh, And you're like, okay, thanks. Uh, There's a lot of joy. Thanks. Uh, So we spoke to Rachel at Optometry tomorrow back in February. Uh, So check out the uh, mission website for the latest news and opportunities to get involved at www.15s30m.co.uk or just go for it with your own mission. Uh, So now let us magically transport you back to Telford, uh, which we were talking about uh, last time. It has an ice hockey team as well, for anyone who doesn't know. You want to go and see ice hockey, go to Telford. Uh, Here's our chat with Rachel. Rachel. 
Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So, uh, Rachel, as a consultant ophthalmologist, what do you spend your working day doing? Can you talk us through it? Yes, I have um, quite a portfolio job really at the moment. My main interest is paediatric ophthalmology, so uh, children in eye clinic, refracting specs, squint surgery, lumps and bumps, uh, deliver the retinopathy of prematurity service in Bradford, so going on to the neonatal unit, seeing the prem babies. And then um, adult learning disability, uh, so see adults in clinic with learning disability, but also go out on the road and see patients who can't come to us. Mm-hmm. And uh, then special schools, so do a lot of work um, out in the local special schools, seeing children in their environment yeah. and uh, and helping provide eye care for those children who don't need to come to clinic but can't access high street optometry. Is it, is it often the case that people with uh, learning disabilities need to be seen outside of a... Uh, clinic is it so is it as a percentage maybe are you seeing them more often not in the clinic or is it maybe vice versa so uh, I think um perhaps not unique but very unusual in doing that and that um came from knowing that we need to provide care for people who can't access it otherwise and our mm. families have many other challenges yeah. um we're very lucky in Bradford to have a learning disability um health facilitation center um and they have had a, an on-site orthoptist for more than a decade so she detects patients uh, mm. who can't attend high street optometry and filters out the ones that she feels need to come into clinic or I go out there and then for very few patients who find it too challenging even to leave their own home, we go and see them in their home. The side effect of that is that it shows to the carers, to the community team, how much we value sight. Mm-hmm. And that means they value sight and that means they flag up problems sooner. So uh, the um, the side effect really is not on those few patients we see out in their homes, it's actually on the rest of the population is the, the so, knock-on effect. So a certain, there's a certain word of mouthness, presumably, then about it, is that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, there are, so it's a small handful of patients that, that we go out and see, uh, but it's not often that we do that, and it's not in an acute situation. Yeah. So what do you enjoy most about uh, working with people with learning disabilities? Um, so a uh, variety. It's absolutely the best part of my job. Um, I feel really privileged and really humbled actually by the families um, and knowing that if I can show uh, a, a carer or a parent uh, how their child or the person sees, then I can have a huge impact on the amount of independence they have, on how they communicate. Um, you can have a huge impact on the carer's lives. I think that's something I learned by mistake by mm. a few patients doing their cataracts is actually the carer came back and said, it's amazing because now I can leave the room. Now yeah. I can go to the shops because she doesn't mind being on her own anymore. She started doing jigsaws again, so she's occupied. Yeah. Um, and realising that those few patients I can make more of a difference to their lives and their carers than pretty much anyone else I've seen the rest of that year um, and I think um, I'm someone who likes things that other people think are on the edge um, right. enough cataract surgeons out there and there are enough glaucoma surgeons enough VR surgeons but there's very few people who are interested in what I'm interested in and so that's fine I'll go and be interested in that so you like being challenged yes fair to say definitely <laughs> so what are your biggest cha- challenges? What are the biggest barriers in, oh. in peds in the community? Yeah, so um, I suppose two categories. It's the challenges that we put up ourselves. And so there's a thing called misguided kindness that I sort of coined a few years ago. And we do it ourselves. So we, as health professionals, say, oh, oh they, they find it too difficult or it would be too too upsetting for them to come into hospital or um, too difficult for them to have a general anaesthetic. So we, we put these barriers up and because we think we're being kind. But then there's lots of myth-busting to be done in the community. Uh, 
quite understandably someone who doesn't do what we do thinks that if you can't read letters well then you can't have your sight tested thinks that if you don't read well then why do you need to see and that's not a million miles away from what I thought 15-20 years ago and it's only I've learned had the privilege of learning through contact with these amazing families and carers that actually getting that message out there and saying actually just rethink what you're thinking a little bit take a step back and take a risk because actually the impact you can have is absolutely huge. So that kindness from the practitioners actually preventing people accessing services that people without learning difficulties would be able to access without us thinking about it and and so actually it's preventing people from obtaining the sight or the care that they would otherwise have yeah absolutely and that's because we don't have information so when you make a decision it's like a seesaw I often have a slide where let's talk about cataract surgery in adults to start with and normally you know that you could take the cataract out you'd improve their vision because you know what the vision is now you know what the vision should be because you've been able to examine the back of their eye and their local anaesthetics there's minimal physical risk to the patient you know from your data set what the likelihood of outcome is and very small chance of of sight-threatening complications if you've got someone with learning disability you don't have any of that information and so you lump it onto the risk side because you don't know it's going to make them better you don't know that it's going to improve their quality of life you worry that they might have a complication that you then can't handle they're going to have to have a general anaesthetic and that'll be distressing and so no wonder we tip the seesaw the other way so part of what I've been trying to do for the last five, ten years is put some information on the right-hand side of that seesaw to say, actually, if somebody used to see well, they probably will again. If you can't examine the back of their eye, that's okay. Take the cataract out and then examine it on the table. That general anaesthetic risk is no higher in them than in anyone else. You know, walk through all the things on the seesaw and go, okay, so what does your seesaw look like now? And help people feel um, empowered. So you, you said you have a portfolio and some of your time is in secondary care and some in the community. Mm. How's that funded? You know, you know, you, you know I mean, <laughs> okay, crazy. Don't ask that. So um, I go to special schools for free because I love it and it's just amazing. And it's, um, uh, I, I'm just fascinated by it. And I think the children are amazing and the teachers are amazing. And it is absolutely the best part of, of, of my working life is going into special school and if you asked me to stop it I'd fight you um but we are working a special school eye care program with NHS England um particularly with the charity Sea Ability we've done a huge amount of work so there will be funding so that from actually this April we're doing a few test sites so every child 120,000 children in special needs schools in the whole of England will be able to access an eye care assessment it's not a site test in the same way that you're thinking of a normal high street assessment but it will be funded through GOS, an increased site test fee, but will include a whole programme. So it's called the programme for a reason. So it's not just a refraction, it's refraction dispensing, visual assessment, visual impairment teacher um, support, going into the schools, having a board where you meet with the head teachers, you have to go into school and train the teachers, the teaching assistants. You know, it's a huge thing. It's not what we've learned and seeability learned, and Maggie Woodhouse's team have learned that if you just go in and ret someone and walk out again, you do something, but it's not the the ripple effect that you yeah. need. Yeah, it sounds very impressive. Certainly, it's interesting the idea that you know the, the sort of um, the kindness preventing something because it's sort of the opposite of other patients, isn't it? Sometimes when uh, you could have an intervention or not have an intervention, and people forget that not doing something is an option, not intervening is sometimes the best thing. It's almost with these patients, it's the other way around. Yeah. The default is well, let let's leave them alone. Let the the bar is higher uh, to intervene. Exactly. We put more barriers up, but it's a very human thing. I'm not being critical of anyone. It's exactly how I felt 20 years ago. And it's only through, um, I suppose, taking what felt like risks at the time. And it's all all very qualitative data. So I Mm. can't give you 
I can give you some numbers, but just having seen the impact on a patient of previously wheelchair bound, needed someone to feed her, needed a hoist to transfer on and off the toilet, who the day after cataract surgery got up, walked, started pinching the bottoms of people, started stealing food <laughs> off other patients' plates. I know the pet carer came uh. in and said, oh, I said, oh, how's it been? You know, you think, oh gosh, I hope they've been okay overnight. I hope they've not, not been in pain. They went, she's been a nightmare. <laughs> and then she explained why. And I'm going, well, there you go. So this lady's now mobilising. She's feeding us. I mean, oh my goodness, what, yeah. what an impact packed without really knowing that having no clue that that's what i would do and you only need one of those yeah. for you to go okay this is this is worth it yes restoring humanity for all, all its different <laughs> elements exactly. that's fair enough okay so yeah i mean in terms it sounds like obviously it's an attitude thing and you know just talking of that um amongst these many many fascinating brilliant things you're doing there's something else as well so you have this thing called the 15 seconds 30 minutes social movement mm -hmm. um so would you like to tell us what it is where it came from yeah so um a co-founder called dan wadsworth so um we both worked at bradford teaching hospitals um he's a manager he was a deputy head access outpatient access and we applied for um uh, an award called the sir peter carr award which was for a quality improvement project um so something that makes a difference to people to how we provide healthcare, and we came up with some fairly dull ideas and then um, one night uh, I put my daughter to bed. Every night before she gets to bed I say to her, can you clear away all the clothes from your bed and your chair and your floor? Um, and she just w puts everything in the wash basket and I just yeah. put my hands on my head and went, Maddie, if you just spent 15 seconds putting those clean clothes, the ones I've just brought upstairs, these clean socks in your drawer or that pair of jeans you've worn once, put mm. them in the wardrobe, you'd save your dad and I half an hour a week in time spent doing laundry, washing in and out of the wash basket, ironing don't iron uh hanging things up i concur yeah <laughs> and actually the little light bulb went on that actually this sort of thing is happening she she's doing what i've asked her to she's clearing away the clothes and she's doing it in a very efficient way she's going oh this is brilliant it's taking me no time at all and she thinks i'll be happy but actually by mistake without her knowing it she's causing a lot of extra work for someone else yeah in the health service that happens everywhere mm. Is just simple things like checking a phone number, uh, checking that a patient's got the medicines they need to come into hospital, um, letting someone know if their the clinic's running late. These little acts take you no time at all, but they cause a lot of improvement for someone else. And that's really the spirit of the social movement. Mm -hmm. It's different to pay it forward. It's that you can increase joy in work for yourself by doing a little something that makes someone else's day better. Quality improvement's three main things. It's patient safety, so doing the right thing. It's cost effectiveness, doing it well, the cheapest way, the best way we can to look after our resources. But the third aspect is joy in work, and it gets left, it gets forgotten. But actually, joy in work underpins the others. If you have a, a team member, a staff who have high morale, who enjoy their job, who can feel themselves doing good, then patient safety automatically improves. Your cost effectiveness automatically improves your wow. sickness rates go down your staff retention goes up and so joy in work is really what's going to save the nhs right. it's going to save the whole of healthcare internationally okay noted we've got that yep uh, yeah brilliant uh, so why 15 seconds was this um you know did you workshop this was it like well, what can it, you do in five it, seconds people aren't going to spare 43 seconds it was my muddy if you just spent 15 seconds literally it just it came was, to you it in a was moment just the words that came out of my mouth right. and i scribbled it down somewhere um when i was reading lots of articles trying to work out what our project was going to be for this award and i just came back to it when someone for someone else i said oh i wrote this little thing down and they went mm. 
that's the thing. That's it. That's the that's gold. the thing, yeah. because that's the thing that can apply to anybody from chief executive to porter. It can apply in secondary care. It applies in primary care. It applies in social care. It applies in nursing homes, in pharmacy, in mm. optometry. It can apply anywhere you don't need any resources to get started you don't need a project plan you don't need to get permission that's really key vast majority of staff working certainly in secondary care are um, band two three four staff who have a line manager and feel Mm. they need permission to do things for this you you don't it's that smiling at someone it's that saying thank you it's little things that make a big difference to someone else's day and you feel really good inside has your child started doing this? No, it's terrible. She's Thanks. worse than she ever was. She's 13 now. And it's even got to the stage where we uh, we reformatted her bedroom so I can't see her floor as I walk upstairs. <laughs> so I can't see all the clothes anymore. Well, I mean, maybe that's another <laughs> alternative for the NHS. Maybe they could do yeah, that. Yeah, spend a lot of money. We, we, uh, yeah, yeah, no, they've it. tried that one. Yeah, that's right, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> what kind of examples do you think where it works best? You know, just practical things. Yeah, so a lot of the things that make the biggest difference are front of house. So um, checking you've got the right phone number for somebody. Um, reminders, so certainly with the NHS, sending text message reminders, ringing people up to say, oh, your um, appointment for surgery is tomorrow. Are you still coming? That sort of thing makes a big difference. In secondary care, means you're not losing the appointment slot, which you can't then backfill. It's uh, simple things like asking, what can I do to help? So... Um, for patients coming to the front desk, we're asking them, you know, if you have difficulty hearing, okay, we'll, we'll write that on the top of your notes so someone will come and find you rather than waiting for your um, name to be called. Um, and the same thing will apply within an optometric practice. It's the simple explaining what you're going to do before you're doing it. It's um, offering people choice. It's saying what happens next. So how long is something going to take? What's the next stage in the process? Um, very small things, which a lot of people will think of being common sense, but for other people, it gets lost in the myth of, well, why should I? Well, you should, because actually it'll make you feel good. You feel really good that you've done this nice thing. Certainly in GP practice, when we're trying to get into GP practices and they feel quite, they're under a lot, huge amounts of pressure. We, we just don't have time. We don't have time. It's things, some things like just boiling the kettle. So when you've made a cup of tea, if you refill the kettle and put it on to boil, that means the next person who comes has got a ready filled boiled kettle that they can then quickly make their drink and refill it for the next person. And actually, what you then feel within a team is that someone is always doing something to help you. So you go to the kettle and it's always boiled. But then you also know that you're doing something to help someone else because you are boiling the kettle ready. And, and so how do you plan to scale this campaign? So so presumably has this just been within ophthalmology in your service at the moment? Or have you taken it to other professional bodies or groups? So um, we began really in earnest uh, the beginning of 2018 and we're now in over 120 organisations across uh, NHS. Wow. So yeah, primary care, secondary care, social care, GP practices, uh, University of Nottingham pharmacy department are integrating it into every part of their degree so it will be out in community pharmacies. Um, we've been to a couple of um, private organisations, not private healthcare, private businesses um, who've shown an interest. Um, we uh, There's the TED talk so if you google Killing Wadsworth and Ted, um, you'll find our TED talk. So I, I have a confession. I watched your TED talk okay. earlier on this week. It was brilliant. Oh, it was you. amazing. What was that like? <laughs> oh, um, it was an it was an ordeal and wonderful. So we were last on. So we'd been there from eight o'clock in the morning. We're speaking after six o'clock at night. Um, so it's a long day to be excited, but not too excited. Um, but we that for us is a real threshold moment. And we'd applied the year before, but missed the deadline. Um, and the year before would have been would have been too early. 
we we've refined us. The thing about a social movement is it's only a social movement if it moves on its own. So when we were setting it up, we knew it had to be done with no money. So you had to be able to join and not pay anything. So all the resources on our website are free. That we couldn't visit every organisation. And in fact, we've only been into two or three. After that, people have found us on the website, found our workshop materials and run a local workshop themselves. We knew that... Uh, it couldn't just be us. So there are several organisations, particularly um, Cornwall and Plymouth and Nottingham, who and now Northampton, who are amazing, who have started um, spreading it to other places themselves. So they find people on Twitter who say, what's all this? And they answer and they go, oh, it's this. Here's our workshop material. Let us send you some badges. And so we're not even having to do that <laughs> bit anymore. Um, so, yeah, it's a side hustle that Dan and I do for fun um, because it brings us so much joy. And we keep saying, oh, no, we're going to finish it. And then we, we can't. It's really taken off um, in the last three or four months, particularly with this us having to do less and other people picking it up. And it just it, it growing almost on its own. And so is it fitting into like other kind of more compassion related training like the Hello My Name Is campaign or the, you know, happiness in the workplace kind of, it, it, it seems to fit into that quite nicely? Absolutely. And because it comes with a quality improvement vent. So um, we say it's quality improvement for people who don't think quality improvement is for them. So most training on quality improvement is to senior sisters and ward managers, where actually most of the workforce are, are not at that level. We felt we needed something that everyone could get involved in, not needing to go on a training scheme, not needing to fill in complex um, training packs. There's a whole language that goes with quality improvement that we deliberately avoid. In fact, we rarely talk about it as being quality improvement. And that was our was our plan is to get into a um, so everyone can have that joy from knowing that they're doing something to make it better. Organisations are full of golden nuggets. Those people who are worth their weight in gold. You'll all know who they are, who don't get recognised, but just do stuff um, because they know it, it's the right thing to do. Well, it's helping harness their power and showing other people how amazing that that can be. So if an optometrist is listening to this and like, hey, this sounds like a great idea, I'd like to bring this into my practice, yep. they can watch TED Talk to yep. find out more about it. They can go to your website. Yep. And follow well, so follow us on Twitter. So yeah, the website's got all sorts of stuff on it. Um, there's a, a whole workshop pack, so you can download the workshop materials. It's got like a whole timing thing, so you don't have to do anything. There's YouTube channel, so if you Google um, YouTube 15S30M, there's lots of videos of Dan and I waving our hands about talking about it. <laughs> but then there's lots of little um, uh, animations that we've done with little ideas of, of simple missions that people can get an idea from. Um, drop us an email, info at 15s30m.co.uk and we there's stuff back on the um, auto reply but then we can get back in touch with you and post you out some bits to get started but there's um the hall of heroes on there so people from all sorts of places saying what they've done and what missions they've they've tried so there's no list you just go for it so just on the mission the thing that you pledged mm. to do in the 15 seconds what do you think makes a good mission so we have a little mnemonic for that uh, called tardis so it's t something you do today don't need lots of planning um, it's a little something so if you're thinking of rewriting a project plan it's that's not it. it's a tiny little thing right. that only takes a few seconds um it r reduces frustration uh d you don't need permission to do it i is it increases joy in work and s is that you can share it other people can copy it it doesn't have to do it it's not that everyone has to do your mission but actually it's something that people go oh that's a great idea i'll always take some paper with me when I go to the photocopier so there's always paper in there for me and someone else frustration is 
the biggest thing that drags people down yes. they know they can do yeah. their job better they know that we can provide better care for patients well this is a way of reducing your frustration I think it's also because uh, frustration is usually linked to something else. So the thing you're actually frustrated about in that moment is almost certainly a sign of something else going on. And it sounds like the sort of thing which helps to shift attitudes, which is uh, the, the real thing that can deal with uh, frustration. Um, I hope some people won't confuse the I with increased frustration. <laughs> remember what that's for. That's fine. Increasing joy. Work. Increasing joy. That's it. Uh, great stuff. So how have you applied it in your own practice? Have you found yourself sort of, you know, now when you just are practicing normally, that it's sort of embedded, that you'll think, oh, hang on, there's a thing I can do here. Here's another one. Here's another mission. Yeah, absolutely. And it, interestingly, people, whenever you forget something or don't bring something, people go, oh, you've just spent 50 <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but is it, it's the simple things, you know, writing yourself a little note. Um, it's noting, I talk about patient phone numbers, but the amount of time that my secretary would spend ringing a GP practice trying to get hold of a patient's mobile number, because mm. particularly... Um, Young people change their mobile phone numbers very regularly. Sure. So if we're trying to ring a child to bring them in for surgery, if we haven't got their phone number, we can't we can't do it. Um, I often think what happens next mission is quite important. So saying to a patient, okay, this is what's going to happen. You're going to leave, your appointment will come through the post. If you don't hear something, then here's a number for you to ring so we can chase that up. Um, and then one of our favourite ones for a hospital is it don't be a dead end. So um, if someone walks up to you in the corridor and says, oh, can you show me where cardiology is I don't know where cardiology is but instead of going oh, I'm sorry I don't know where cardiology is you say oh I don't know but let's go to the information board together yeah. let's go to the front desk together and actually even though you've not solved the problem it makes such a difference to the person that you've helped and you yeah. feel so good inside that you've done that little thing Yes, it's good when you can know that a problem will be solved as opposed to you can't solve it yourself. There's a lot of that going on at the conference at this stage as well. Someone says, can you tell me where the toilets are? Can you tell me where this room is? And you're like, no, but I know someone who can. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, that sort of thing. Um, so what's the most unexpected consequence of a mission or the 15 seconds that you've seen? Is there anything that you've thought, you know, wow, that, that really spiralled from 15 seconds in quite an impressive way? So um, one of the exercises that we do um, in the workshop is a, a, to do with COGS. So COGS are really important to us and mm. um, when you become a 15 second 30 minute hero you get a little cog you buy them from amazon they're really cheap cool. uh, to go on your lanyard um, and the knock-on effect of missions so often things like putting um talk about putting newspaper on your windscreen on a frosty night so that it's not frosted over and the knock-on effect and sometimes in the workshop they get very big there's all sorts of global warming being solved <laughs> as a result of not needing to use de-icer and spending less time in traffic and mm. and, and um i think certainly one locally that made a big difference was the power cut so we had a power cut one morning and uh, front desk shutters were stuck down and all the lights were off and so one of our front desk receptionist who'd been to a workshop um she decided that she'd stand at the front entrance and and welcome patients and say oh no we are we are open i know the lights are all off and the shit's down but we are open we are open come in just write down their name and date of birth so she could then pass that behind the shutters where there was a computer that was working and we could check the patient in and get them into the waiting room wow. and that meant that all the patients who turned up between 8 13 9 so about 50 of them didn't turn around and think oh we're closed mm. we didn't have to rebook all their appointments that's a huge amount of admin time saved for carol's team it also meant when the shutter went up there wasn't a huge queue of patients so again that saved frustration for the patients and the receptionists that's been quite stressful having to check 50 people in immediately it also meant that when the power went on there were patients in the waiting room ready to be seen so the clinic could start on time yeah. and that meant it finished on time and that meant the afternoon theater list started on time and that meant we didn't have to cancel someone's operation and 
you know, knock-on effect on pharmacy. People are through the system, so there wasn't a big queue in pharmacy at lunchtime. The hospital transport could take people home on time. Yeah. Huge, huge knock-on effects of Carol just doing that one quite simple thing, which wasn't in her standard operating procedure. It wasn't something that's in her specific job description, but she knew that she could do something small that would knock on. She had no idea actually how many people it would help, yeah. but it did. And even the fact that in doing that produced what might normally have been a relatively normal day um, is still a huge knock on because it wouldn't very much would not have been a normal day if she hadn't done that. Yeah, what should have been the worst day yeah. of the year actually turned out to be one of the best because she and the staff felt so giddy that they'd done this amazing thing. They'd stopped something from being a problem before it was. So do you think, have you seen it in other situations really change people's attitude to problem solving? Do you think more than just saying someone saying, well, I did this mission and that ticked the box? Because how it's set up is specifically to say it's because you do this that it leads to that and so much else. It begins to change people's whole attitude to the idea of looking at a situation. Yeah, so um, leadership's a big thing in the NHS and people feel there has to be a leader and therefore there has to be a follower. But actually, we're all leaders in one way. If we people are waiting to be told what to do, well, then you're immediately disempowered even if someone says i give you the power to do it you're, you're giving someone power this you give yourself the power is that you come to work and decide you know what whatever else happens today no matter how busy we are i know that i can make today a good day for me and being able to carry that around with you all day is, is huge and so particularly for the staff who previously would have felt that they needed permission or they needed to check with someone they realize that they can do the smallest things that make the biggest difference so you mentioned a couple of examples where you've spoken to private businesses. Um, how did that go? So um, businesses everywhere are all about their workforce now, aren't they? Sure. <laughs> so they are also looking for ways of keeping an engaged, healthy workforce. And well-being is a really important part of that. And joy is a really important part of well-being. Yeah. Um, so you may feel that, you know, an accountancy practice is not the place that might be filled with the most joy. But actually, it's the, you know, putting away someone's breakfast dishes if they've had to leave them on the side because they got called away to a phone call. It's the taking a message from a client and taking down their phone number. You know, it's all those little things that actually can make a huge difference to the day. And it sounds like common sense. So an IT example, we talked about labelling files, is that if IT are labelling files in a way that makes perfect sense to them, but not to anyone else in the world who is searching for the file, well, that's no good, is it? It's about relabeling the files so that they are called something that you could search for. So optometry is interesting because it's sort of um, often in the high street, often has a business context, but is also a healthcare profession. Are there any ways in which you can see that this sort of would be different for that particular environment compared to, say, the hospital environment that you've been in? Um, is there anything that you would suggest that could where it could be tailored to take account of that particular environment? Well, they tend to be small teams, don't they? So I think mm. compared to secondary care or even a GP practice, which can often employ, you know, 30, 40 people, it's a smaller, it's a smaller level. But that doesn't mean you can't do things to help your patients have a, um, a better experience. And if you want to think of it in that way, is what small thing can you do that helps your patient have a better experience? If that's referring into hospital, it's, you know, I keep banging on about mobile phone numbers, but goodness me, what a difference does that make? If you can ring a patient and invite them into a clinic appointment, whereas if all you've got the address, you, you can't then do that. Um, letting the patient know when they might expect to hear from the hospital, letting them know which team you've referred them into. You know, it's, it's small things that might, feel information that you hold in your head that actually other people may not have in their head it's those small things just communicating them across
Daniel, can you think of a mission in relation to sort of uh, frames and dispensing and stuff that would work? I think there's potentially lots. Um, I, I heard you actually say uh, a mission that was used by the ambulance service that I think will really resonate with a lot of optometrists. Can you tell us yeah, about that? Yeah, we love him. So um, this chap called, he's uh, not called Richard at all. We call him Richard in the talk. His name's actually Gareth. Um, so he came to the Yorkshire Ambulance Service and came to one of our workshops. Um, and he said if he spends 15 seconds uh, checking a patient that's got their glasses with them when he collects them, takes them into hospital, um, then the knock-on effect is that is, is huge. And it could be collecting hearing aids and teeth as well. It doesn't just have to be glasses. So if the patient's got their glasses with them, they can read a menu. They can read someone's name badge. We all know that you hear better when you see better, um, that they might be more likely to get out of bed because they're not going to worry about falling over. So all these things make a huge difference. Now, Gareth won't know the frustration he's saved. The patient won't think, oh, fabulous, because I've been reminded to take my glasses, I now won't. But it's not about that, is that however busy Gareth's day is, he knows that he's managed to save all that frustration for a patient and that makes him feel like he's having a great day. I think at least half a dozen times I've been on the other end of that situation where a carer has come into the practice and said, oh, my other half's gone into hospital, that she doesn't have her glasses. Um, I need to get a new pair made up. I can't find the pair at home. And, and actually weeks of work or days of people's time just chasing around to find a pair of glasses. It was a really pertinent, um, I, I don't know, example of how 15 seconds can save hours and hours of lots of people's time. Yeah, um, and the, some of the best missions are the ones where the person wouldn't, know that that you save them their frustration and interesting that's one of the um barriers we had to get over to begin with is people go but, but why would we because no one's going to know well no it's not about whether someone would know it's that you know inside do you feel things like standard operating procedures are a barrier just in general to the common sense of humanity in, <laughs> in, 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 in people working together it, it kind of makes people very much well it's not in my job role and and that's one of the biggest challenges in terms of burnout and people resenting their their role in healthcare so i think what's interesting is no one's read the standard operating procedure so people know there's a standard operating procedure and they uh, then imagine in their head what is in the standard operating procedure and then that verbally becomes law uh, so um, Dan and I are very much not fans we know they have to exist we know we know but actually there's something about um, realising not everything is in the standard operating procedure yeah it's probably as we said about sort of the attitude of problem solving the attitude of the whole system isn't it I suppose the problem with a operating procedure or shall we say governance generally can be that it gives off the impression that everybody has a role that they must do and they must not go beyond it because there are reasons and there are laws and stuff but this allows people to lose sight of the whole and to recognize well this asking someone if they've got their glasses uh is doesn't have to be done by someone in particular that is not the point the point is the operating procedure and what i do and what i say and the 15 seconds for 30 minutes is all about engineering a system that moves as efficiently as possible i suppose isn't it yeah absolutely because we all you know we're all cogs as part of this massive network and um the getting away from the, but it's not my job, mm. and knowing that, well, actually, if I did this, it would make a big difference. So back to Maddie and her wash basket. Is that actually, is it, is it, she feels her, does it matter if she puts clean things back in the wash basket? It doesn't make any difference to her. But actually, we're able to show her that actually, if you are putting in five pieces of clothing that have already been cleaned and you've never worn into the wash basket, well, that's a whole load of washing a week. And that's time that we're then spending that we could be having fun with you. 
And actually there is a knock-on effect as you don't see it immediately, but you will eventually. We, we like to think of it as a benevolent cycle, 15S, yeah. 30M. So even though you don't notice that someone somewhere will be doing something that is making your life easier, even if you never know that it's happened. And that's, that carries some joy with it. Let's hope that she gets there eventually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so are you aiming for international impact with the oh, project? Oh yeah, global, you, intergalactic. Yep. Good, yep, so great. <laughs> intergalactic <laughs> NHS needs, uh, needs uh, adaptation. Uh, so yeah, have you got connections in other countries? Yeah, so we're talking um, on a Canadian course this summer um, at a Quality Improvement Institute and uh, there's Institute of Healthcare Improvement, as IHI. Um, they have got a, a global joy school that is starting, so we'll be part of that. So they're going into Singapore and India and several sta- places in the US and Canada as well. So yeah, wow. we, we said it as a joke, but no, we really no, are really? No, it's <laughs> Fantastic. It sounds like a brilliant initiative. So, Rachel, thanks very much for coming in and talking to us about it. Oh, no, well, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rachel, for telling us about her work and the 15-second, 30-minute movement. Hopefully, the print will never be paper-free ever again. Indeed. So remember, the College Podcast is out every month, so why not subscribe to avoid missing out? Uh, If you rate the podcast, then that also pushes us up the charts, which is handy. That's it from us. For now, speak to you next time. (laughs) 